me. It's, uh, we have been spending our, our summer Sundays in the Psalms, uh, picking a different psalm each week and, and looking at the way that it might communicate something about us and about God and about the relationship that we share. And some Sundays it feels a little bit like we're lying on a therapist's couch. And some Sundays it feels like you look over on the sideline and, and there's our own cheerleading squad pushing us on. And, and sometimes there's just a question mark around what it says. This morning, we have uh, an incredible psalm to look at, just rich not only in its meaning, but also in its usage through history. If you, um, if you go to that seminal moment in the life of the church, the church word for it is Pentecost, but that's just a fancy way of saying this is the very first day of the church, the first moment, the, the day the church was born into existence as an act of God when, when God sends his spirit and says, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to do it through you. Day one in the life of the church, Pentecost Sunday, the apostle Peter stands up to give what goes down in history as the very first Christian sermon. The very first sermon given on the very first day of the church. And the text that he uses for his message primarily is this one from Psalm 16, the one the worship team just read for us. So you kind of have the sense that you read it that, you know, if it was good enough for the church on day one, if it was good enough for Easter Sunday, if it was good enough for Pentecost, it ought to be good enough for us here in the middle of August. And in fact, it is. What is it that Psalm 16 tells us? Essentially, it tells us two things. The first comes in the form of a question. The question is phrased by the man who wrote it. This is one of the Psalms of David. And David is hes asking something. In fact, the, the, the language is even stronger. He's crying out for something. He's crying out for what? For safety. For refuge. And so the Psalm is meant to to uh, sort of echo that question that most of us will utter at some place in our lives. God, where can we find a place of safety when everything else in the world feels chaotic and unpredictable and everything is changing? Where is the refuge that cannot be shaken? And then it deals in the second half of the psalm with the answer to the question, how is it that we get what God has promised, an unshakable foundation for our lives. So we're going to look at it in those two sections. Have a look in the very first verse. That's the cry of the psalm writer who says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Look down a little further in verse 8. I'll keep my eye on you. If you're there at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Right. A place of safety that cannot be shaken. Now, what's this all about? I mean, was the Bible written in a place that's situated on one of the Earth's tectonic plates? Are they, are they prone to earthquakes all the time? Why the desire for something that can't be shaken? This is actually language that reaches far back in the Bible. It reaches back to the very beginning of the story of one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, to Abraham itself. In fact, when... When you're looking back at that story, incidentally, if you want to read the Old Testament in just an hour or so, have a look at the book of Hebrews and look at chapters 11, 12, 13. There you have the whole Old Testament kind of summarized in three chapters. But Hebrews 11 says this about Abraham, that he did not rest his heart in his wealth or in his land or in anything of this world. It says Abraham looked forward to a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And at the end of chapter 12, 
same book, book of Hebrews, we're told that that is a city, that is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Abraham was the first in a long line of people. David, who writes Psalm 16, is another one, and many of us sitting here today would add our name to the number. People who are looking for something in this world that cannot be shaken, cannot be taken away, something that's dependable. One of the main messages of the Bible is that there is nothing in this world of that nature. Nothing in the world that will last. Everything is passing away. It's fleeting. It's precarious. It's temporary. Some examples. Think about the the chair itself that you're sitting on or the ground that you stand on. This stuff, this physical matter, that's solid, right? That's dependable. That's a certain thing. 150 years ago, physicists would have said in absolute agreement that the world was made out of solid matter and that the matter that makes up the world has always existed, that it's dependable, it's certain, it's sure. You know what physicists will tell you today? They'll tell you that that matter, this stuff that feels so solid to us, really is nothing more than energy in motion. And the fact that the universe itself is winding down, moving from order to disorder. You remember high school science, the laws of thermodynamics? Brian, you look like you remember the laws of thermodynamics. The second great law of thermodynamics is that everything is moving to an increased state of entropy, disorder. Things are undoing themselves. So astrophysicists would project with great accuracy that one day the sun itself will burn out. When it does, life on earth will end. That in fact, eventually the universe itself will wind down. And so an author thinking about that, about the the state of, of the world, about this thing that looks so solid, matter itself, an author put it like this. He said, if nature, if all that exists, if it ends, and if there is no God, if there is no supernatural world outside of nature, then human civilization will in the end have been just an accidental flicker and it won't be here and there'll be no one around to remember it. If, the writer goes on, the whole of human civilization lasted even a billion years, in the end it would be infinitesimally short in relation to the oceans of dead time that proceed before it and that follow after it. The world doesn't have a solid physical foundation. And you know that's true, right? Because you've ever gone out and, and sought the home that you grew up in and driven down what you thought would be the familiar streets and you realize it's all gone? What used to be there isn't there anymore? It's, it's not dependable. It's not unshakable. And it's not lasting. Think about this. The world has no unshakable intellectual foundations. What are the ideas, the great ideas that were here a thousand years ago that are still here today? There's no human philosophy that will last. What's extraordinarily clear is that there are things that were written on the editorial pages of newspapers even 25 years ago that would horrify us as being hateful and obscene and primitive, just horrible stuff only 25 years ago. And do we really think that we've arrived at the ultimate moment? My goodness, I hope not. Uh, That somehow 25 years ago, people will look back to the stuff that was written on the editorial page of this generation of the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, and say, isn't it wonderful how brilliant they are? They finally arrived at the truth 
And that truth had never changed. There are things, I mean, let's be honest here. There are things that, that we imagine that ourselves, enlightened people, that, that, that are absolutely clear that two decades from now will be embarrassing to us when our grandchildren sit down with us and say, did you really believe that? Did you really think that was true? There are no unshakable intellectual foundations, no human philosophies that have become perfect and eternal. Most of them become obsolete. A lot of them just look stupid over time. But here's the worst, I think, of the things that that we like to think are lasting, that in fact are a very shaky foundation. There are no unshakable emotional or relational foundations. I'm going to I'm going to say a couple of things, and they're they're hard to say. So before I speak them, let me say that uh, this is meant to be a message about hope. And I hope it ends on a resonant note of hope. But let's be honest about this. This life will take away everything that you love. Everything that means anything to you, this life will eventually take away. Cannot keep your family together. You cannot keep a group of friends together. This world will scatter them. Some will get angry. Some will move on. Some will just wander off. And of course, all of them will die. Hard, right? This week I read an interview with a young woman. She worked as a model. She says, I need to get ready for the future. I'm 26. I'm a size three. I know by the time in my 40s, I might even be a size 8. Or, worse still, a size 10. Ghastly, isn't it? And I know people who get there and they're devastated and I need to get ready for that emotionally. And you just want to say, my dear, you're going to have to get ready for for a lot more than that. It all gets taken away. Summer flowers, they're soon going to be in the ground decaying. And they're really only on a slightly faster path than the rest of us. But we're all on the same road. You see why David is crying out? We all cry out, don't we? We don't, we don't want just to be a wave on the sand. We'd, we don't want to be just one flitting phantom in the universe. We want something that lasts, something that can't be shaken. It's what David is crying out for. Not just safety, but a refuge that will always be there. Something we can stand on, something that's dependable, something that we cannot lose. So how do we get it? This is a really practical psalm. And the writer, again, the writer is David. David tells us a series of three important things that we need to do. If we're going to find that kind of place of safety, that unshakable refuge, three things. Here's the first. Stop running after other gods. It's it's a negative thing. But have a look there in verse 4. There are those who run after other gods, says in verse 4. Not just who believe in gods, but who run after other gods. What does this mean? Ancient world, the ancient Near East, where the Bible, much of it was written, where the people lived. They believe in a whole pantheon of gods, right? They're all out there. 
There's a God of war, a God of beauty, a God of fertility. There's a God of athletics and a God of wine and parties. Very popular God, that one. And, and, and you went to each of the gods when it was appropriate for the phase of life or the endeavor that you were involved in. All these different gods and people worshipped at the shrine of all the gods as needs arose. Now, listen, we don't believe any of that. That sounds like so much hokiness right now. But we still run after all of those things. And here's what that phrase means. When the Bible says run after other gods, it's the word pant. You know that beautiful psalm, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul longs for you. It's the same word. Like your, your tongue is out and you're, and you're wagging exhausted because you've been running after this thing, thinking if I only got it, if I only had this thing, I'd have the fulfilled life. My life would be worth something. There'd be meaning. I'd have satisfaction. And we know that people make that choice. I make it. You make it. We make it consciously. We make it semi-consciously. But whatever it is that we're running after, that we're set upon, even though we may not call it divine, functions in the same way those gods functioned in the ancient world. We don't believe them as being these divine little creatures, but we're still running after them. We're still panting, exhausted at the effort, tongues hanging out. And David is really clear about what happens when these things take hold of our lives. He says, those who run after gods will what? Suffer more and more. As time goes on, you'll be shaken. You know why? Because even if you're one of those fortunate few, the lucky minority of people who actually get the things that you're running after, as soon as you get them, they start slipping away. Nothing in this world has an unshakable foundation. And as they slip away, you feel it starting inside, that tremor, that, that trembling. And you start to wonder, what was it all about? I worked so hard for it. And now, finally, having achieved it, it's all going away. So that's the first thing. Recognize what it is that your heart is running after. Here's the second thing. You pursue God rather than those things. Look how deliberately David is at describing this. He says, if you want a refuge that cannot be shaken, if you want to be able to say, these are his words, because my eyes are on him, because he's at my right hand, here's what you have to do. Verse 2, very deliberate. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you, I will have no good thing. Literally, in, in Hebrew, it says, beyond you, there is no good. There's no good outside of you. He says it again in verse 5. Lord, you are my portion, my wealth, and you are my cup. Whenever you see that language in the Bible, it's really you are my cup. It's, they don't have a fascination with tableware. That's the expression for joy. You are my cup. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. My cup overflows. My joy will be full. Now listen, didn't, didn't David already believe in God? Of course he believed in God. But we're not talking here just about belief. We're talking about running to him. Saying that you are the highest good. You are my greatest joy. You are the most significant source of meaning and purpose in my life. It's easy, isn't it, to deceive ourselves? I mean, you can be extraordinarily religious and never have really done this. You go to church, 
you believe the right stuff. You say your prayers. You give a portion of, you've, of what you've got to good causes. You can believe all the doctrines and be busy in all of the activities. But the minute something goes wrong in your life or with your health, or with your family, your financials take a downturn. You're furious. You say, I did, I did all this for God, and yet he's letting this happen to me. And then the trembling starts. The shakiness. I thought my life was unshakable. Because you, you think you've done the God thing, but really you've been running after all the other things. What David is getting at here is change it around. You want to be unshakable. You may need to do some of those other things, but run after God. You've been doing the God thing, but running after all those other things. Switch it around for the first time in your life. Pursue God. If your tongue is hanging and you're wagging, exhausted, let it be because of the pursuit of something that will be lasting. Don't just say, I believe in you. I'm not just obeying in order to get some sort of state of security with you. I get joy out of it. You're my, my life, my hope. You pursue God. That's the second thing he says. It makes you unshakable. It's the road to it. It's the one thing. It's the one thing that not only can it not be taken from you, it's the one thing that, that even if death comes, only gets better. The love, the presence of God. Which leads to the third point here. You claim the unshakable hope of, and you see it in the notes there, it's, it's kind of a technical sounding expression, it's not meant to be, but you claim the hope of the beatific Vision. What does that mean? The beatific vision. Beatific sounds like the word beautiful, right? What is the most beautiful vision you can imagine? For David, it meant to be face to face with God. He had that audacious desire, that dream, that that promise that there would be a day when he was literally in the presence of the divine. Because, you know, in some ways, what we've said up till now, you can find that teaching being said in in other religions. Buddhism is really great on the first point, incidentally. Buddhism is great at saying the reason that we suffer so much is because we desire so much. That the road, if you'd like to salvation, is to quench all desire. Stop desiring things, you'll stop disappointment. So Buddhism is strong on this point. Don't run after all the wrong things. For Buddhism, though, the hope is is not that you would achieve some state of, of, of union with your creator, oneness with God. It's that you would just stop. Not just desire stops, but everything stops. Consciousness stops, and you just go drift into the great sea of everything that is. But Buddhism is really strong on that. Don't run after things. Islam. Islam has this triumphant vision of a personal God and you need to make Allah the most important thing in your life. And all the religious practices, all the regular daily prayers, the diet, the apparel, they're all designed to make sure that Allah stays central. So you can find in other religions the idea that you need to make God important and not run after other things, but only only biblical religion can give you what David is about to give here. In the end, in these last few verses, he says something, and we need to spend a few minutes reflecting on it, because it was remarkable when he wrote it, and it should be remarkable as we read it and receive it. In fact, the people who first read these words and who sung them 
probably were in a state of shock. Listen to verses 9 to 11. Therefore, David says, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you do not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. And here it is. You fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is all pretty remarkable. At this stage in history, back in the Old Testament, when the Psalms are being written, maybe some of the people, some of the Jewish people had an idea of, uh, of the afterlife, the possibility, but nothing like this. It wasn't all that developed. And David's saying something remarkable here. And basically it boils down to this. The love that I have, the friendship that I have with God, the fellowship that I have, the love that he has for me is so strong that I don't believe that death could strip it from me. If you have a relationship with another person in your life and something comes between you and you have the power to get rid of that obstacle or barrier, you would do it because the relationship matters. Now take that and escalate it to a relationship with God who is omnipotent, who has all power. And is it really that inconceivable to say, as David is, that God, that God loves me and the friendship and fellowship that I have with him will never end. Not even death is an obstacle that God will allow to come between it. That's where David is landing. These things I have this conviction about. Here's the first, David writes, that I will see him face to face. That word presence, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Whenever you see presence in the Old Testament, face-to-face. That's literally the expression. I will experience joy face-to-face with you. And then he goes on to say, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What's he getting at? The beatific vision. God face-to-face. I mean, certainly David must have known the other stories of the Old Testament. Stories like Moses. Moses, who had the same audacious desire. said, God, uh, if you will, Give me your glory. Give me the ultimate experience of you. And God says, no, I can't. It'll kill you. It'll kill you. Uh, Here, I'll just tuck you away in a cleft in the rock and and I'll pass by and you'll only see the shadow of of my backside as I'm passing by. The idea is that it's just too much for us. And yet David is saying, there will come a day when it's not too much and I'll revel in it. And then he goes on to talk about pleasure. Eternal pleasures at your right hand. Well, you know, this is a place where where the church historically has really gotten it wrong. In the church, don't you sometimes get the feeling that, that we got a thing about wanting to restrict people from having too much pleasure? You know, pleasure is bad. We need to live lives of simplicity, stripped of all pleasure. Yes, simplicity, but not stripped of pleasure. We need to guard ourselves against the temptation that pleasure offers. Well, yes, but pleasure is not bad. Pleasure is the gift of God. In all of the centuries of his effort, working as an adversary to God, Satan has never succeeded ever in creating a single pleasure. All he's ever been able to do is take the good pleasure that God has made and twist it and corrupt it. The only person that I know of who even comes close to getting us to an understanding of this is C.S. Lewis. And he did it in a remarkable sermon that he preached in Oxford in the 1940s. Google it this afternoon. It's called The Weight of Glory. 
The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. And he writes a couple of fascinating passages about what David is really getting at here. Here's a way to think about it. Lewis says, the energies, the energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the world are what we now call pleasure. I don't know whether you got that, but here's what he's saying. If you go to parts of the Bible, Proverbs 8, for example, it gives us this, this beautiful image of God creating the world. And when he does it, he's, he's, just, he's so filled with joy, frolic and way, and, and absolute delight, joyful. Creation accounts in, in other cultures, particularly in the ancient world, they have nothing like this. Creation is normally born out of hostility, out of conflict. There's a huge battle, and out of the chasm of the battle, creation comes into existence. No, the Bible says God created the world, and it was a work of art. It was an overflow of creative joy. And here's what Lewis is saying. I love this. Such a wonderful thought. He says, when God is creating the world, he was in rapture. Creative rapture. He was in such joy when he was creating the world that some of that joy gets permanently imprinted into the things that he was making. God's creative joy implanted in matter, and that's what we call pleasure. See, what Lewis is really trying to say is that when God makes things like sound, music, when he made your body, when he makes food, that the creative rapture he was experiencing in making it leaves an imprint so that when we enjoy it, we're actually feeling a little bit of the pleasure of God that was there when he first made it. We participate a little bit in the joy of God. Why is it that there are some sights that are just so beautiful they move us to tears? Some sounds, some music that reach a place that, that would be unreachable. You bite into a ripe mango and, and the juice runs down your cheek and there's just that taste. Or, or spicy biryani or whatever it is. But why is it? It's, it's because there is an imprint there of God's joy and design. Here's the answer as C.S. Lewis writes it. He says, the energies which God's creative rapture implanted into matter when he made the world are what we call pleasure but even now, filtered as they are, there's a whole sermon there about the filtering, but even now, filtered as they are, they're much too much for us. What would it be like, Lewis speculates, to be there at the very fountainhead of the stream from which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicated? The greatest pleasures you've ever had in your life, the most beautiful sights, incredible sounds, wonderful tastes, whatever they are, they're just distant. They're far off hints of what it's going to be like at the fountainhead in the presence of God. In his face is the fullness of joy. And so David says, at his right hand are pleasures forever. That's what I'm going to have. It's a great place in 1 John chapter 3 where it says, Beloved, we don't know what it's going to be like, but when he appears, when he appears, we will see him at last as he is. And then he adds, 
And to anyone who hopes for that, they purify themselves as He Himself is pure. That's what's going to happen. Of course it is. It, it purifies you. You become a more unshakable person. What about the other part of what David says there at the end of the psalm? Remember he says, My body will rest secure. I know that you won't abandon me to the realm of the dead. You won't let your faithful one see decay. It sounds like he's talking about resurrection, doesn't it? The only thing is, back in that day, the people didn't really know about or believe in resurrection. But it sounds like he's saying, I'm going to have this afterlife, not just as a disembodied spirit floating around. I'm going to be resurrected so I can really experience all of these things. Is that really what he thought? Maybe, but, but here's what Peter knew. He didn't just think it, he knew it. And he uses Psalm 16 on Pentecost. And he uses, uses it to point to that greater king, the descendant of David, who made it all possible. And this is what he says about Jesus. That God didn't abandon him to the grave, raised him up. He's seated there at the right hand. And he's seated there as a guarantee that those who believe in him will be resurrected too. Do you know what that means? It, it means that... Let me put it this way. What if you knew that he was resurrected? What if you knew that the resurrection was a fact and you believed not only that it was a fact for him, but it secured the promise that it was a fact for you in your future? Wouldn't that change the way that you went to every funeral? Wouldn't that change the way that you wept every one of your tears? Wouldn't it change the way you handled things that came your way, even adversity? And wouldn't it change the way you acted when it felt like things were slipping away? Sure it would. It would make you unshakable. Because the resurrection doesn't just mean that someday in the afterlife we get a small consolation for the stuff that we've lost here. That's not resurrection. What it means is that we get the kind of life that was always intended for the world living right there at the fountainhead. Right there, face to face, with creative rapture in the presence of pleasure that was always intended to be for those who were endowed by, created by, and intimately connected with God Himself. You run to that. You, you run to the resurrection. You run to it because there is where you find a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And for that, I think we should pray, right? Let's do that now. Father, we thank You for everything that You've given us. And Jesus, this tremendous assurance, not just that you exist, but that there is a love there that can never be lost, never shaken, never taken, a foundation upon which we can stand. And we thank you for that. We pray now, Lord, as we sing again, as we think some more about what it is you did on that day, raising Jesus from the dead. We pray that those truths could pass more deeply into us so that we could become more and more conformed into the image of your Son. In whose name we pray. Amen.